Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Quite a while back, James Conant was walking down the street in Washington, D.C. He was on his way to volunteer for the Army. As he headed to the enlistment office, he ran into this guy that he knew. Both of the men were chemists, and when Conant told his colleague where he was going, the colleague, James Norris, was appalled. Norris told him, you could do more for your country by staying here, in the U.S. Conant, of course, wanted to be in the action, which is why the idea of joining the Army had appeal. But Norris had a different kind of action in mind. It was 1917, First World War, and Germany, which had some of the best chemists in the world, had already unveiled a series of horrific weapons, worse than anything that anyone had ever seen, like chlorine gas and mustard gas. Norris wanted Conant to fight back, but with chemistry. For Conant, this was the first of two wars in which he would be consumed with and worried by the science of killing. He would also go on to help run the Manhattan Project, the quest for an atomic bomb during World War II. The project famously prompted physicist Robert Oppenheimer to cite this line from Hindu scripture, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. When they saw that enormous fireball go up into the sky and they realized that they had achieved the impossible, that they had built this terrifying new weapon, they understood, really the physicists understood right then, what a revolutionary, horrifying, devastating weapon they had unleashed and how the world would never be the same. That's Jeanette Conant, the author of Robert Oppenheimer and the Secret City of Los Alamos. Yes, they were relieved that 27 months of unmitigating around-the-clock labor had yielded this weapon, and, and then there was nothing but fear and dread of what this meant for the world. Conan has written extensively about crafting some of the deadliest weapons the world has ever seen and what it's meant to the people who made them or pushed for them, people like Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein and her grandfather, James Conant, who she writes about in her most recent book, Man of the Hour. In fact, when Jeanette was growing up, what her grandfather had unleashed seemed ubiquitous and incredibly scary. I mean, I grew up in Cambridge during the Vietnam War, so war wasn't some distant theoretical thing. You know, there were protests in the streets, all the windows in Harvard Square were smashed in and covered with plywood. You know, it was the burning issue of the day, and we would see images of Vietnamese villages being torched. And my father, who was very liberal and the angry son of a great man, would say things like, well, that's napalm, which your grandfather and the Harvard scientists invented, and he's a mass murderer. Hmm. So I saw that side of it, where people um, by the 60s saw weapons of mass destruction as means of mass murder. On the other hand, I you know, sat with my grandfather and his colleagues who felt that they had built this weapon to end a war that had gone on for years and years. Right. World War II claimed 50 million lives, mm -hmm. and they felt that it was um, necessary to sacrifice 
two cities, 140,000 people, to bring the war to a quick and decisive end, that it was the lesser of two evils. Um, it wasn't an easy decision. It wasn't a decision that anyone took lightly. But they felt at the time that it was absolutely the thing that they had to do to finally bring this horrible war to an end. So I saw both sides of the issue. And the tension um, is something that is so present that it continues to be a yeah. uh, subject of fierce debate today. And by the way, did your grandfather ever hear the kind of thing Things that your father said about napalm and like oh, yeah. every Thanksgiving and Christmas, yes, it was the major battle of the dinner table. Wow, that's not your typical Thanksgiving or Christmas. Uh, no, it discussion. was an open wound, yes. Yes. open wound in my family. Um, but it was, you know, in some sense, uh, for the country. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to your grandfather. I talked about the story of him, like walking down the street. He's going to the enlistment office. Was he hesitant at first? Because he did end up, you know, I, I talked about him running into this friend of his who was a chemist, and he did work on these poison gases. Was he hesitant at first to do that? How did he feel about that? Very much so. You know, he was um, an academic chemist. He thought of himself as becoming a professor and working safely in some little squirrely laboratory somewhere. Um, he was raised by a Quaker mother, and in fact had been bitterly opposed to World War One, even when all of his friends um, joined, you know, the great patriotic zeal, uh, ran off to uh, help the Allies and joined ambulance corps and uh, uh, volunteered. He was bitterly opposed to mm. World War One. He mm. didn't see the point of World War One and didn't want to be involved. And selfishly, he didn't win want to interrupt his academic uh, career. But when uh, we finally joined in 1917, he had no choice. Everybody was enlisting. And he was on his way to his enlist when he got sort of uh, recruited into the Chemical Warfare Service. Uh, he hated it. Um, he, and in letters home, he described this trying to beat the devil at his own game, you know, making these terrible, toxic, asphyxiating gases. But people need to remember that in wartime, it's a race for survival and uh, sort of troubling moral issues get pushed aside when men are being slaughtered in huge numbers. His friends were dying at the front, and he was told that if he helped develop these gases, they could retaliate, they could push the Germans back. And American boys were just arriving in France and being gassed to death. And so hmm. it was a very pressing, urgent matter that we uh, try and develop chemical weapons that we could use to retaliate against the Germans. Yeah. And talk a little bit about how good the Germans were in terms of chemistry and in terms of developing these gases. Because when you read the descriptions of the gases being unleashed and like literally thousands of French people dying at a time uh, from gas, I mean, not they were not being shot. Right. That's not what was happening. These were incredibly effective. It was a devious and diabolical weapon gas. World War One, if you remember, was trench warfare. So right. it had been this bloody war of attrition that had ground on for years and years with the French and the, and the allies opposite the Germans uh, in trenches where they dug in and holed up for months. And then every now and then the, the officers would call a charge and they would go above ground and be mowed down. And this, you know, they gained a foot, they lost a foot, mm -hmm. and this went on and on in terrible fashion for months. 
So the Germans developed gas, and the whole point of poison gas was that you could launch it into the opposing forces' trenches, and the poison gas would settle into the trenches and drive these coughing, mm-hmm. uh, dying soldiers out of the trenches into the open where they could be shot. They started with chlorine gas, and they moved on to phosgene gas, and they were making these more and more poisonous death clouds that would just float over the opposing army. Of course, we know the Germans became masterful at gas. They mm-hmm. would then invent um, sarin and tabin gas in World War II, which they used to exterminate millions of Jews. So the German chemists were so far in advance mm-hmm. of the American chemists. I mean, really, American chemistry was at their early stages compared to European chemistry. In fact, all the great American chemists studied in Germany under these great gods of chemistry, the German scientists. So they were way, way ahead. In we spent all of World War I playing catch-up. So your grandfather, at the time that World War I ended, was working on this really deadly uh, gas called lewisite, which never, I think, got used because the war ended too you know, quickly for it to get used. And then sort of amazingly, despite, as you say, like he didn't really like what he was doing, he didn't really want to be making deadly weapons— Again, when World War II came along, he got pulled into the sort of group of scientists and the scientific project to um, make ever deadlier weapons. How did that happen again? Uh, It was the crime of experience. Uh, My grandfather was appalled by the weapons work he'd been pulled into in World War I. He turned his back on it. The minute the war was over, he had you know, dozens of of very high-paying, lucrative offers to go into industry to continue in the chemical warfare service. He Mm. wanted no part of it. Mm. He went back into academics. He, in fact, became president of Harvard University. But he'd had that wartime experience. And so as World War II, you know, swept Europe and the uh, German uh, Nazi troops blitzed their way across one democracy after another, and he saw you know, free speech and democracies fall to the Wehrmacht. He realized that there was no way America could stand by. He realized we would inevitably have to fight for freedom in Europe. He became such a leading spokesman that, of course, he became very much to um, President Roosevelt's attention. Roosevelt needed all the help he could get. He privately wanted to intervene, but America was isolationist overwhelmingly. And so my grandfather helped guide the interventionist movement and urge America into war. So the minute we found ourselves at war, it made sense, of course, that as a scientist who had developed weapons in World War I, who had all this experience, who had been so prescient in the 1930s about the fact that America would once again need to come to uh, England's aid and defend itself, that he would become appointed as one of the leaders of the Manhattan Project, this huge um, effort to organize um, scientists and technology for war. You know, you've written about a lot of people who were involved in the Manhattan Project, including, of course, Robert Oppenheimer. How do you think that he and, you know, he was surrounded by all these physicists and all these incredibly smart people who'd been assembled at Los Alamos to do these tests to figure out could they come up with an atomic bomb? How did they feel about what they were doing? Was it hard to recruit scientists to come uh, to Los Alamos to do these tests and to try to figure it out? Uh, well, that's a complicated question, and, and there's a, sort of a various ways to answer it. The first question is, was it difficult um, to recruit scientists to work on the bomb? Um, 
not because of moral reservations they had about the bomb, only because they didn't think the bomb would work, and they wanted to work on weapons they thought would work. A lot of the top refugee scientists and American scientists were working on radar, a proven weapon hmm. where you could, uh, you know, isolate uh, U-2 boats hmm. under the cover of fog and, and German uh, airplanes uh, by night and shoot them out of the sky and destroy railroads and bridges. Um, radar was the weapon that was winning and would win the European war. And all the refugee scientists wanted to work on radar, not mm. some futuristic right. theoretical bomb that might right. not be done in time. So there weren't moral objections. I mean, okay. people always think, why didn't they have moral objections? Remember, um, American boys were dying in the thousands. People saw this as trying to defeat the worst despot, the worst evil they had ever seen in the form of Hitler. So it was a race against time. And again, uh, when you're in the weapons business, as all scientists were at that point, building proximity fuses and torpedoes, they weren't worried about the moral niceties of the bomb. That would come much later. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Jeanette Conant about scientists and their wartime inventions. She's the author, most recently, of Man of the Hour, James B. Conant, Warrior Scientist. Uh, it's in, you describe this moment where they're testing the bomb, which they called Fat Man, right? Yeah. And, like, you've got these incredible scientists sort of cowering because they're, you know, the bomb is going off. They're kind of trying to watch it, but kind of trying to protect their eyes and themselves and so on. And as the bomb goes off and they see sort of different aspects of the explosion, they people are saying, like, oh, wow, that piece of it did work. I never, like, you know, I didn't realize that. You know, you realize this is such a big thing, and yet it is also their little experiment at the same time. Yeah, so they have two or three sides of their brain. There's the technical side of their right. brain that is registering the level of the explosion, right. the height of the mushroom cloud. They're looking at the debris, the fallout, um, the plumes. They're thinking, oh, I feel the aftershock, you know, the blast of warm mm -hmm. air in their face a few seconds later. They're immediately calculating what that means. So they have the technical side of their brain. And then there's the emotional side of them. You know, my grandfather said that when the whole sky turned white for a second because of the blinding light. For a split second, he thought that it had all gone wrong and this thermonuclear explosion that Edward Teller had raised the possibility of in a discussion months earlier and that Hans Bethe had ruled out as not likely had happened hmm. and that, in fact, it was going to be the end of the world. So for one second, he felt that blip of terror. So you, you can see the way their minds were racing. Right. Now, interestingly, between this test going well in some ways, it worked, and before the bomb was dropped on Japan, there were scientists who were not sure that Truman should do it, that he should drop this bomb. People had created this, but then when they saw the potential reality, you know, up until then it was academic, and then reality was sort of in front of them, they weren't sure that the president should do it. Yes. And remember, uh, you know, two things, what you just uh, explained exactly, had it been really a theoretical discussion, now it was real. Yeah, now, right. undeniably, there was going to be a weapon ready to use. So suddenly the urgency of the moral issues came back in force. Oh, my God, uh, what have we done? A lot of scientists started asking themselves. But complicating that greatly, exacerbating their anguish was the fact that um, this test, the Trinity test in July 1945, you know, the European war was over. 
over. So they had worked all this time to defeat Hitler and undeniable evil. And now General Groves came to Los Alamos and said, don't stop. You are going to continue to work seven days a week because we're going to drop this on Japan. Now, for many of the scientists, particularly the, the, the many, many brilliant um, Jewish refugee scientists who had families in concentration camps, who had lost hundreds of family members, you know, they had built this weapon to stop Hitler. They had not the same um, feeling about Japan. They didn't know what they felt about that. And they were suddenly filled with questions, with qualms. You know, is this the right thing to do? They're scientists. They're not military strategists. And suddenly they started to say, wait a minute. We're, we made this weapon. We want to say this is our weapon. We created it. We're responsible for how it should be used and controlled, they also right away saw a third um, issue, that this weapon was so powerful that whoever had it, you know, would essentially rule the world. They knew as scientists that they could not hold the secret. This was a secret of nature, essentially, that had been broken out and examined and exposed to the world, and that, that everybody would have this secret cracked in a couple of years, and that other leaders would have the bomb. So that right away they saw that an arms race could develop, that this bomb had to be controlled. And so right away you had scientists, Leo Zillard, all the scientists, University of Chicago laboratories, protesting, writing letters to General Groves, to the president, saying, wait a minute, we want to be heard. We want to have a say in whether or not this bomb is ever used or how it's used. And their perhaps naivete was that even though they had created this bomb, they were not going to have a say. Mm -hmm. The bomb project had been given to the military. It was the military's decision um, how to use it and when to use it. And as much as they would yell and protest and sign petitions, it was too late. It was out of their hands. And many of the scientists uh, never, never forgave themselves for their naivete in handing it over to the military early on and not realizing the consequences of that decision. So let's talk about the vision that I know like Oppenheimer worried. He kind of foresaw the arms race that you talked about, but maybe even a world of suitcase bombs. Like, this world didn't exist, but these people were smart enough and understood the science well enough that they worried that, as you said, that the world was going to enter this new era, this incredibly scary era where maybe, you know, bombs could be anywhere and it was hard to know who would control them. I think that's, to me, one of the, the biggest revelations of the book is when you when you see what the scientists were warning, Niels Bohr, Robert Oppenheimer, they were fully aware of the danger even before the first bombs were completed. They were warning um, the political leaders, the president, that these weapons would proliferate, that these weapons could be um, put in suitcases, they could be transportable, it could fall into the hands of terrorists. All the nightmare mm -hmm. scenarios that haunted them in 44, 
in yeah. 45. Yeah. Uh, and they started talking about publicly um, after the war in 46. They foresaw all of the situations that we face today. It's not like we got here by accident and this nuclear showdown with North Korea was some unanticipated mm-hmm. scenario that couldn't be helped. Right, right. No, they foresaw it in detail. They warned against precisely this kind of nuclear showdown, but they just could not bring everybody to the negotiating table. Um, are there lessons that you think we should take away? I mean, you, you've been getting out a little bit, but from these military innovators who you've you know, spent so much time with and thinking about and writing about that might teach us something about the world today? Well, I think the most immediate uh, lesson and the most applicable, I think, from my book is that all of these scientists that built the bomb, that had a hand in how it should be used in the bombing of Japan, they would all say, I think, that nuclear weapons were so terrible that once demonstrated to the world, once everyone could see how dreadful they were, they should never be used again. I mean, we, we currently have a president who, who sort of speaks glibly of using them again. These are weapons that should never be used again. We should never leave the bargaining table. We should never stop negotiating with an eye to preventing the use of these weapons again. So I would say that's the first lesson um, that an Oppenheimer um, opponent of Bush um, would urge on today's leaders. Jeanette Conant is the author of several books about the intersection of war and science. Her most recent is Man of the Hour, James B. Conant, warrior, scientist. Jeanette, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. Here's a footnote to this story that probably is not going to surprise you. After the war, James Conant went to Moscow hoping to convince the world's other major superpower that nuclear weapons could not be allowed to proliferate. Many experts worried that the Soviet Union was going to have the bomb in just 10 or 15 years. But Stalin was not interested in talking. What Conant didn't know was that, according to his granddaughter, Stalin had spies working with Oppenheimer in Los Alamos. In under five years, not the 10 or 15 that the experts predicted, the USSR had developed a nuclear weapon. Long ago, Garry Kasparov had a showdown with the future. And the future won. Now keep in mind, Kasparov hates losing. For nearly a 30-year span, he was ranked the top chess player in the world for all but three months. And even thinking about old games and moves that he missed decades ago, it annoys him. Which is why, for many, his matches against the IBM computer Deep Blue in the 1990s held so much importance. A month after his 96 match against Deep Blue, he wrote about a new kind of intelligence across the table. That intelligence is now across all of our tables. Kasparov writes about this intelligence and its implications for us in his new book, 
deep thinking, where machine intelligence ends and human creativity begins. And one thing to note, as Kasparov pointed out to me, he did beat Deep Blue in a series of games before Deep Blue turned the tables the following year. Still, Deep Blue's ability early on to steal even one game from Kasparov, it sent a signal. The fact that machine could beat a reigning world chess champion uh, under normal tournament conditions, that was already um, an indication that the rest would be just a matter of time. It's like uh, like a sign on the wall. Why do you think that your facing off with Deep Blue has such kind of cultural resonance and gets talked about a lot? And it's kind of not even the specific game, but it, it's like this signpost, right? From the beginning of um, computer era... Um, uh, there was a belief that chess could serve as the ultimate test for machines' intelligence. And also, the ch- game of chess was always seen as a nexus for human intellect. So that's why machine-facing humans in chess and winning this battle, that definitely could be a, r- a revolutionary moment. is 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 a watershed moment. And... Uh, uh, of course, uh, the matches in 96, and especially in 1997, they were quite unique because it was just the beginning of this new era. It's the, the technology was introduced in our daily life. So people had very little access to technology before. Many did, but still, the, when you look at the big numbers, it was just, you know, the grand opening. And I think the match in 1997 played a huge role in changing people's view about technology. It was a very annoying moment for me. But at the end of the day, um, if, I, if I have to think back whether it was my curse or my blessing that uh, I became world champion when machines were really weak and I ended up my professional chess career when machines were unbeatable, I think it's more like a blessing because I was part of something unique, mm. a unique experiment. Um, and uh, right. having a choice between being the first world champion to duck this challenge or to get in, into that and to lose, right. I'd rather prefer the latter. You could have come away from your experiences with artificial intelligence just kind of, you know, wanting to get as far away from AI as possible. But that's not really what you've done. You speak a lot at places that use AI, like Facebook, like Google, like hedge funds. What made you so interested in AI, even beyond chess? Uh, First of all, when we say AI, you know, I always ask people to be more precise um, about the meaning because mm-hmm. if you ask 10 experts about meaning of AI, you may end up with 11 different answers. Yep. And yep. I personally, I prefer augmented intelligence okay. as the definition. And the reason why I was so engaged, still so much engaged in this debate, which is very much philosophical debate at this point, that is, um, I realized that while, after my match with Deep Blue in 1997, that while the, the rest of this fight against machines would be over fairly soon, so we could actually use chess as a model for collaboration. You cannot beat mm-hmm. them, join them. And uh, um, okay. I came up with a concept that I called advanced chess, where we could have um, human and machine teaming up, uh, playing against other humans, uh, another human and machine. Uh, and I thought that this combination could actually tell us more about the future possibilities for us to exploit this massive brute force by matching mm. human intuition and understanding with the, with the brute force of calculation and, and uh, unlimited memory. And um, since that, we, we had pl- many experimental matches um, played in so-called advanced chess. On the internet, it's called freestyle because you can play in any form of chess with machines, uh, with other humans, uh, just 
teaming up and just creating the best combination mm. possible. So we found out some, something quite interesting is that it's not about the strength of the player who is teaming up with the machine, but it's more about the interface. It's about the process. Because machines are so strong today, that is, you don't need uh, a very strong player to be a partner. Somehow it, it could even be a liability because strong players, they tend to play their own game. They don't want to recognize the fact that in many cases, machine is just superior. But it's about a good operator, someone who could add these uh, hints of human knowledge when it's required and to make sure that a machine doesn't lose its pass in certain situations where machine knowledge is not sufficient. So um, the formula that I drew out of my personal experience and my contemplations and analysis is that a weak human player uh, with average machine and superior process will always dominate in the game against stronger player even stronger machine, but inferior process. Can you see examples beyond chess of places where um, that kind of human-computer collaboration could be or is particularly important or powerful or useful? Everywhere, actually. This is, you, okay. you can hardly call area where it's not happening, but nobody understands how to get the best out of this. And uh, we can move into, say, medical diagnosis. So uh, we know that machines are getting better and better, though there's still the sub-areas right. where machine could not provide the best answer. But uh, mm-hmm. if you apply the same formula in, into this area, so you'd rather have an experienced nurse working with, with an algorithm than a top professor who, who will always be tempted to challenge machines' assumptions. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Gary Kasparov, one of the great chess players of all time and author of the book, Deep Thinking, Where Machine Intelligence Ends and Human Creativity Begins. You tell this story in your book that I didn't know anything about, but it's fascinating. You know, there were once upon a time thousands, actually tens of thousands of elevator operators. And you say that the... In New York, in New York. And and you say that the elevator companies actually had the technology to have essentially automated elevators, which is what we have now, right? You can operate them yourself. You just get in and press a button. It's easy. It takes you where you need to go. Nobody helps you. But they didn't want to introduce the technology because they were basically worried that people weren't ready for it. They were worried about the backlash. It's a fear. It's just a fear of something new, something unusual. Yeah, and it's for, for almost half a century, the technology was there, but was not introduced. And what pushed people, you know, in this direction is, is, is a general strike of the elevator operator union uh, that was very powerful in even mid-40s. And when people had to climb to Empire State Building, they thought maybe we'd rather take a chance of pushing the button. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same will, will, will happen in, in the car industry. I bet you that 25, 30 years from now, uh, on this show, we'll have our children, grandchildren, talking about us, their parents and grandparents, being so stupid, driving cars, while right. the car accident killed more people than probably any, any other uh, uh, factor uh, in the modern life. So mm-hmm. it's, I think it's about us just simply recognizing that progress is, is inevitable and, and every technology is agnostic. It's neither good nor bad. It's, it's for us to use it. And unfortunately, looking back, at, at every major um, innovation, the breakthrough um, technology, it's it's always started with a destruction because it's easy to de- to destroy. You know, first you are when you have a nuclear uh, technology, first you, you come up with a nuclear bomb and then with a nuclear reactor. So, I mean, it certainly is true that technological change always switches around what people do. Um, you know, as we said, elevators showed us that. Maybe self-driving cars are going to show us that. 
But you also have scholars who say, like, this time feels different. um, And that, you know, if you look at jobs, for example, you've got a bunch of jobs being created on the high end. You've got quite a few jobs being created on the low end. But it seems like there's not a lot of jobs being created in the middle, these jobs that that support the middle class. Um, Do you worry about that? Um, look, I think it's a history of human civilization. It's, uh, you may call it the progress. Mm-hmm. Since the, the dawn of human civilization, we have been inventing machines, some sort of for primitive mechanisms to replace farm animals. And then, uh, of course, we moved further by improving the, um, the quality of human labor. It ended up mm-hmm. with um, machines uh, destroying uh, millions and millions and millions of manufacturing jobs over the last few centuries. And that was there. And uh, the difference today is that all of a sudden machines are going after people with college degrees, political influence, and Twitter accounts. But if you look at the big picture of the history of civilization, this is normal. And I believe that's the way to move forward because Hmm. any industry, any any job that is not under pressure from technology, um, ends up in stagnation. Um, Yeah, I don't want to sound callous. I understand that people just are concerned about the jobs being lost, but this is something that I think we don't want to understand about technology. Technology brings Mm -hmm. many benefits to our lives. We live longer. It's if you if you compare the, the, the lifespan today with what was 100 years ago, I think we added mm-hmm. at least 25, if not 30 years, mm-hmm. thanks yeah. to technology, thanks to uh, new um, new drugs, new vitamins, diet, and also diagnosis. So that's the things that could identify the terminal illnesses just uh, uh, at an early stage. So people mm-hmm. live longer thanks to technology. But the same technology carries the, the negatives because it puts pressure on a middle class. It puts pressure on, on people since they, you know, the younger people, they are just, they're more at demand. So that's a paradox. So people live longer because of technology, but because they live longer and they want to be at, at their workplace for many more years, they will, they're seeing the challenge created by the same technology. So uh, if we try to protract this agony, if we try to slow down the process, to delay the inevitable, so what, what is going to happen? The jobs will be lost anyway, but the new jobs will not be created on time to um, help us to move into the new, um, so new cycle of economic growth to have more benefits and potentially financial cushion to help people who are left behind. Hmm. Finally, um, you have said when articles describe President Trump or uh, President uh, Vladimir Putin as saying uh, that they are, quote, playing chess, right? Meaning that they are making these kind of tricky political moves, that that is an expression that really gets on your nerves. Why? Um, starting with Trump, I don't think he can play chess because it's, it's a very, <laughs> very short span of attention. So chess requires some concentration. Uh, also, um, chess is 100% transparent game. And uh, that's, that's, that works for, uh, actually, that doesn't work for both Trump and Putin. They don't like transparency. So mm. it's just the, typically, this is, it's uh, less for Trump, more for Putin, but both are used to operate in some kind of the clandestine environment. So believing that uh, it's, it's for, for them to make all the decisions and then to inform or even not decide not to inform people about the outcome. So they're doing something, but not playing chess. Yeah, I would. I always wanted to compare Putin's game with poker because he was pretty good in 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 playing with weak hand, but bluffing, okay. raising stakes, and expecting <laughs> opponents to fold cards. Gary Kasparov is author of the new book Deep Thinking: Where Machine Intelligence Ends and Human Creativity Begins. He's also a former world chess champion. Gary, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. 
at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about Kasparov's match against Deep Blue about 20 years ago. People still debate whether it was a fair fight. We have a link to a video from ESPN Films and 538 analyzing the match. It's on our website, innovationhub.org. We are at a moment in time when dystopian science fiction stories feel like they are everywhere. George Orwell's 1984 has been a consistent bestseller over the last year. A TV version of Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale has been lauded by critics and by fans. Thinking about alternative worlds is something that Cory Doctorow has been doing for decades, and he thinks it's crucial that we do it more. Doctorow is a co-editor of the website Boing Boing and a science fiction writer. His latest novel is Walk Away, which pushes income inequality into a future that sometimes seems out there and sometimes seems closer to reality than we might like to think. And he says he's always looked at the service that science fiction offers us this way. You know, ideas for what to do if the future turns out in different ways, like how to live your life in different kinds of futures, not a, not a prediction. And, you know, Arthur Clarke said, uh, if an elderly distinguished scientist tells you something is possible, they're probably right. If they tell you something is impossible, they're probably wrong. And that really does cover science fiction writers. A lot of what science fiction writers said might happen with our technology and our social relations to it did, did in fact come true. Like what? Oh, well, so Gardner Dozois said, you know, the job of a science fiction writer is to imagine the movie theater and the automobile and invent not just the drive-in, but predict the sexual revolution. Mm. And I think that by the time Gardner said that, some of us were looking at that and going, well, actually, you know, maybe the major effect of all that was that to participate in the sexual revolution, you had to carry government identity papers because you needed a driver's license. And before that, nobody in America carried papers. It was such a, it was like the thing that you used as a shorthand for totalitarian government, your papers, please. Right. right? And all of a sudden, everyone was carrying papers. Well, now we live in the society where like the management and tracking of your identity has become one of the central motifs of, of governance. And maybe that's the thing that that happened. And you see inklings of it around the edges. So William Gibson, you know, didn't know a lot about computers when he wrote Neuromancer in 1984, but he had become a keen observer of how corporations and the state were merging to create systems of control that were based both on the stick of surveillance and uh, heavy-duty policing and the carrot of entertainment. You know, I, I call it being Huxley into the full Orwell. So uh, let's talk about predicting the future, which is hard to do, um, but it's obviously something you think about. Uh, but one of the trickiest things, I think, about predicting the future is that the things that are really going to change, um, they're often like social mores. You know, we think about, oh, the future is going to be about flying cars or spaceships. Maybe. And those things are easy to imagine. But in reality, what has it been? It's been like the role of women or the kinds of societies that we build that are just completely different. Um, I mean, and that kind of stuff was hard to imagine 50 years ago. Yeah. And this is a thing that comes up a lot in the privacy debate. You know, people say I have nothing to hide, so I have nothing to fear, et cetera, et cetera. You know, in like in my, not quite in my living memory, but in my parents' living memory, it was illegal for black people and white people to get married and their children were illegal. Right. It was illegal to be gay. Mm -hmm. It was a felony to be gay. 
Um, it was illegal to smoke weed, which is very quickly becoming legal. Uh, the, the role of women, as you say, radically transformed. And women who believed that it should be transformed were viewed with, with suspicion and they were ostracized. And the way that we got all this social change was by people being able to choose the time and manner of their disclosure, to be able to find the people around them who might work on this project with them, to gradually, according to their own view about who they were ready to talk to about their identity and the secrets of it, were able to to widen that circle until we had these social shifts. And, you know, if we say, well, privacy doesn't matter because I don't have anything I do that I can't talk to people about, what we're really saying is that we believe this improbable idea that in 50 years our grandkids will say to us, tell me again, Grandpa, how it was in 2017. All of our social mores had finally uh, reached their pinnacle and we right. didn't have to change That's anything. Right. Otherwise, you have to believe that there are people around you that you love who are walking around with a secret in their breasts that they can't mm-hmm. tell you yet, who suffer every day because of it and whose plight we will look back on as a like a ghastly miscarriage of justice. Mm-hmm. And so we need to have those spaces. And so, you know, this is one of the, the those things that beautifully illustrates the dual nature of technology. Use technology to let us form groups more efficiently, to find people like us more efficiently, and we can have enormous social progress. Use technology to take away our privacy, and you could take social progress and make it something that never happens. What do you like about writing about the future or about an imagined potential kind of future? Why does that appeal to you so much? Well, I feel like a lot of the fights that I have in my activist work are very abstract, but that by telling the stories of people living through the problems of technology that I worry about, what it would mean if strong cryptography was banned, what it would mean if you know, our networks were primarily turned into surveillance tools instead of tools for, for helping us improve our lives, that I can take some of that difficult to overcome complexity and abstractness and really flesh it out in a way that people can understand right in their guts instead of just in their heads. And that's a winning combination. Hmm. And how do you do that in the world that you imagine in in this new book, Walkway? Um, I just want you to talk about that a little bit because these issues of morality and social standards that we've been talking about obviously factor in as well as the big one, uh, wealth inequality. So in Walkaway, you know, the wealth disparity has allowed both the simple economic injustice and the, 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 the falling away of whole generations of potential workers into a kind of like demimond of uh, semi-homelessness and economic precarity and being sucked into these uh, investment bubbles. And so it's creating this alternate society and the alternate society of, of like bohemians and walkaways it's pretty stable until they take a step too far because one of the projects that the super rich are working for, I call them the Zadas. They're, they're like after Giganaires and, and Heptanaires and, <laughs> and, and whatever. They're, they're Zodanaires. So the Zodanaires are working on practical immortality. They're, they're trying to get people to right. figure out how to let them live forever by Which is body. not so far from the yeah. folks in Silicon Valley. It's certainly a project that when you get rich enough, you start thinking about, right? right? Yeah. Uh, you what know, else can you do with your money? But you have to be around to enjoy it. I mean, what are you going to do with a billion dollars? Yeah, you can't take it with you, so you don't have to go, maybe. So when the scientists who are working on that project realize that their patrons have made them complicit in the speciation of the human race, where the super rich become like 
infinitely prolonged men as gods and everyone else becomes a mayfly disappearing in their rearview mm-hmm. mirror, they steal the secret of immortality and they, they take it to walk away land with them. And then that triggers the all out war by the super rich whose elite panic at the thought of spending the rest of eternity with us basically means that this, this sideshow can no longer be tolerated and out come the hellfire missiles. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with science fiction writer Cory Doctorow. His latest novel is Walk Away. Uh, so when people read this book, is there something that you hope they think about what's happening today? Yeah, I call it an optimistic disaster novel. You know, they... they um, Which makes complete sense. Sure. Sure. Of they, course. You know, optimistic you know, disaster yeah, novel. Yeah, well, so disasters are inevitable, right? Like, even if you have this extremely well-designed, well-put-together civilization, you're still going to have belligerent neighboring states or rising seas or microbes that mutate out of control or, you know, horrible superstorms. And so it's what you do afterwards that decides whether you're living through a disaster or a catastrophe. If you pull together, then that's fine. If you turn on each other, then that's terrible. And, you know, they say that there are two plots, man versus man and man versus nature. And I think that a lot of writers in the pulp tradition, which I'm proud to say I work in as a science fiction writer, they like to have both. You know, the storms come and then civilization collapses. It's a two for one. And um, this gives us this largely false intuition that what people do in times of disasters turn on each other. The reality is that people really rise to the occasion. I was really influenced by this book by Rebecca Solnit called A Paradise Built in Hell that's all about the the real history of things we remember as these descents into barbarism where, as a historian, she examined these first-person contemporaneous accounts of what people actually experienced during Katrina mm-hmm. when they were all penned up in the dome and, and in Haiti after the earthquake. And what she found is that while there were you know Blackwater mercenaries sniping at people people who were allegedly looting, what there wasn't any evidence of were like the rapes in the, in the dome that, mm-hmm. that just turned out to be a kind of libel on, on brown and poor people that was both the reason for penning them up and, and then the reason for keeping them penned up. And so what I wanted to, to do was, on the one hand, see what kind of narrative juice could be squeezed out of the idea, not that after a disaster, we turn on each other, but that after a disaster, one of the real problems is figuring out how people that you fundamentally agree with but can't or are on the same side as but can't agree with, how you resolve that. Because that's a way harder problem, and it's a way more dramatic problem, right? Fighting with your enemies is easy. Fighting with your friends is hard. You know, all the people who have their bug out bags and are ready to go to the hills when things go wrong, those people will not help things get right again. No one, you know, when the when the power goes out and you run for the hills, I can tell you one thing for sure. You're not going to be one of those people who helps the power come back on. It's interesting. I don't know if this has always been true, but you do see when you watch cable news now ads for... Like, you know, food pouches that you eat when you're like, you know, it's the end times and stuff. And, uh, you know, or when some huge natural uh, catastrophe happens or a a man-made catastrophe, I guess. I don't know if like 30 years ago there, there were those kinds of advertisements. But this does seem to be both, like I was saying, in fiction and in non, 
something that seems to be on people's minds. Well, it's one thing to like, so I live in Los Angeles, so I have a 50-gallon drum of water behind the house, and we have some uh, flashlights and some spare freeze-dried food, but we have enough for the neighbors, right? And we also have a freezer full of stuff that if things went wrong, we would would fire up the barbecue and we'd feed the neighbors, right? And we'd hope that they'd do the same for us. It's another thing to run for the hills. And I, I think 30 years ago, we were close enough to the Cold War that there probably were a lot of people with basements full of canned goods. And it's really the sense of what happens when when the lights go out, not whether the lights will go out, that, that matters. You know, if you think your neighbor is coming over with a covered dish, then you won't greet them with a shotgun. But if you think your neighbor is coming over with a shotgun, then you might go over and shoot them before they get to your house. And really, that's the... I was reading about the Titanic, and half the seats on those light boats were empty because the people in them were convinced that they started letting the swimmers in, that they'd overwhelm them, and they didn't wow. let anyone in, right? It's it's really a matter of what your theory of other humans is. And, you know, there's a it is profoundly statistical illiterate to believe that you and all your friends are reasonably decent people, but 99.9% of people are bastards, right? If that's really the case, then, like, how is it that you got so lucky that you only ever met the people who were reasonable, if flawed human beings and not the 99.9% of people who are bastards? Really, most of us are and know representative samples of humanity. Cory Doctorow is co-editor of the website Boing Boing. His latest novel is Walk Away. Corey, thank you so much. Thank you. On our website, we've got more about Cory Doctorow's books, as well as other coverage of why we're in this moment when dystopian TV shows and literature and movies have caught fire. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugars. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.